Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And after taking a week's pause into Psalm 5, we return now to John chapter 10. This week, next week, God willing, finishing out the chapter as we look at verses 22 to 42. This week, part one. Next week, part two. The Roman numerals should not go any higher than that. Um, I'd like to begin by reading John 10, 22 to 42. I'll have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. At the time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said to you, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see in your word the true identity of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Guard us from the unbelief of these Jews. Help us to take comfort in our identity as his sheep, rejoicing in our good, sovereign shepherd. Lord, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In many respects, John chapter 10 ends Jesus' public ministry. Chapter 11 and 12 kind of function as an encore, if it will. You saw at the end of chapter 10 that Jesus withdraws. They keep trying to arrest and kill him, and he remains where he started. At the end of chapter 10, we're going back to where we started in chapter 1, the camp of John the Baptist. And then as the Passover approaches, Jesus will catch word that Lazarus is ill, And Jesus will draw near. We're now in the Passion Week. And 11 and 12 will happen. 
And then from 13 all the way through 17, it's Jesus with his disciples, Jesus praying in the garden, and then in 18, it's the arrest and crucifixion. We are, we are nearly done with Jesus' public ministry. We're nearly done with three to four years of Jesus' life in John's gospel. Nearly, but not yet. And so the, the text picks up in and around the temple. We've been in and around the temple now for about two chapters, but we move forward by two months, roughly two months. So let's look at this in, in a few points. First, point one, the clarity of Jesus' identity. The clarity of Jesus' identity. Verses 22 to 25. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So John gives us the context. We've moved forward now about two months from, from the Feast of Booths that we were celebrating before, Feast of Tabernacles. We're now about two months forward. What is the Feast of Dedication? It's not a feast from the Law of Moses. It's not one of the prescribed feasts. This is one that they created in the intertestamental period. You've got to go outside the Bible to learn about the, the Feast of Dedication. If you've got a Bible, if you've ever seen First and Second Maccabees, which is not scripture, but it can be useful history, it tells us about the Maccabean Revolt, after Antiochus Epiphanes had profaned the temple, offered a, the sacrifice of a sow on a statue of Zeus in the temple. And they cleansed it. They dedicated the temple. And it was a great triumph um, from their point of view. Now, Jesus being here doesn't necessarily mean he's keeping the, the feast. He's in Jerusalem. But clearly, he's not distancing himself from it, which we get the idea that whatever this thing they came up with is, it's not wicked. It's not terrible. They added to the law. It's an added feast. But we have our own added feasts, right? We have Christmas. Nowhere in Scripture we're told to celebrate that, but it's lawful. It's, it's fine for us to do that. Um, they, they have this feast, Feast of Dedication. Now, he tells us it's in December, presumably because he's not confident we know about the Feast of Dedication. He's already had to tell us in his gospel what rabbi means, because maybe we don't know, what Messiah means, because, again, maybe we don't know. He's got to tell us that the Sea of Galilee is also the Sea of Tiberias. So John is not assuming his readers are familiar intimately with Jewish practices, customs, and geography. So I think he tells us it's in the winter, because presumably he's not confident we know when the Feast of Dedication is. For our purposes, this just moves the clock forward two months. And we're now in December-ish, and the, the cross is now hanging very, very nigh. That's where we are. We're also in Solomon's Colonnade. It's a, it's a roofed section outside of the temple. This is actually where the early church is going to gather repeatedly in the book of Acts. So John may have some warm associations with it. But that's the context. We've moved forward a couple months. It's, it's a Jewish feast. Um, this feast, as best as we know, is not one that required being in Jerusalem. You could celebrate this in your hometown. But Jesus is still in Jerusalem. And he is surrounded by people asking questions, which gets to the Jews' questions. Now, the ESV has the Jews gathered around him. Literally, they encircled him. This can also be used of like a mob gathering around somebody. And from where we see the movement go, it may well be that John is already 
casting them in a hostile light. One of the questions we gotta ask is, how sincere or genuine is their question? And you could read this as though these are very sincere, very eager, very uh, zealous people. We wanna know. Now we know from where this passage goes where they try to stone him and they try to arrest him. That's not the case. And already here they're encircling him. They circle around him and they say to him this question, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is similar to what his brothers said. If you go back to chapter seven, that same word for plainly is the same word his brothers used. Um, Look at seven two. And the feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also see your works that you're doing, for no one works in secret if he wishes to be known openly, same word, plainly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And we're told there, his brothers didn't believe. What it appears as though the Jews want is not to know, is he, is he not the Messiah? They want something to get him with. They're gonna take simply a statement that I and the Father are one and try to get him with that. They want clear speech so they can indict him. They want clear speech so they can arrest him and put him to death. Part of the reason Jesus has been using coded language, Jesus has been speaking um, at two levels. His his favorite self-title is the Son of Man. It goes over the heads of most of his audience. They think, oh, Ezekiel, Son of Man. And some of them understand, no, Daniel, Son of Man. Now Jesus can speak plainly about being the Messiah to the woman at the well, to people with genuine faith, but to the crowds, to the masses, Jesus tends to use far more covered language. And it's in part so that they cannot just oust him and and lynch him here. And so they, they ask him this question, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And it's not sincere, and it's not coming from faith, and it's not coming from genuine desire to know. They want to arrest him. They want to get him in trouble. They want to have a, something to hang him on. That's their question. Jesus' answer, I've told you, and you do not believe. Now, strictly speaking, Jesus has not, in John's gospel, publicly said to the crowds, I'm the Messiah. He does that to the woman at the well. He speaks plainly to her. But what Jesus is saying is that he has repeatedly communicated who he is. If you were to watch his teaching and his actions and listen to what he says, his identity would be unmistakable. That's that's what he's saying. I have repeatedly, and and if you've been reading John's gospel, John assumes if you're following along, you've seen him again and again demonstrate, prove who he is. So if you're the Christ, tell us plainly Jesus' response, I've told you, and you do not believe. And then Jesus points to how he told them. And he didn't tell them by getting up one day and saying, hey, everybody, I want you to know I'm the Messiah. That would have only got him killed early. Rather, he points to his works the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And throughout John's gospel, he's been doing works. Most recently, go back to chapter nine. This is how the beginning of chapter nine started. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus works a powerful miracle. He gives this man who was born blind sight. And we learned as we studied through it that that was the smaller miracle. The greater miracle is the spiritual sight. This man comes to faith. That his spiritual blindness 
is signified by his physical blindness. And the miracle of spiritual sight is demonstrated through his physical sight. These are the works of God. This is what Jesus has been doing. So your blanks here. Jesus has repeatedly claimed equality with God. He's gonna do it again. We're gonna look at this next week, but at the end of our passage this morning, I and the Father are one. But you remember 518, (coughs) excuse me, 518, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And who can forget the unambiguous claimed, not just to deity, Jesus doesn't just claim to be God, he claims to be the covenant God of the Old Testament. He takes Yahweh, he takes God's covenant personal name upon his lips when he says in John 8:58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is the most unambiguous claim, not just to deity in general, but in particular, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. The God who when Moses says, who, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. Jesus is claiming to be him. If you ever meet someone who are, insists that Jesus never claimed to be God, they should read a Bible. Um, it, it's unambiguous. And so Jesus has been publicly saying these things, and for precisely these things, he has been publicly, they've tried to kill him. But not only that, but Jesus' works prove he is from the Father. Jesus' works prove he is from the Father. As early as John chapter three, what is Nicodemus' opening salvo when the Jews send him to size up Jesus? Rabbi, we know you're from God, for no one can do the works you do unless God is with him. So as early as John chapter three, the Pharisees publicly recognize, clearly you're from God. Your works prove you're from God. There's not been some ambiguity hanging around Jesus all of his ministry. As soon as he starts functioning and working and preaching, it's clear. And the teacher of Israel comes to him and publicly acknowledges, clearly you're from God. Clearly. In John chapter 5, 36, Jesus makes the exact same point. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Works like feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness like Moses mediated the bread from heaven, the manna, and the people get it, remember? They say this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. What prophet? The prophet from Deuteronomy 18. For God will raise up, Moses says, from among your brothers, a prophet like me, it's to him you're to listen. And they they get it. This man has fed us miraculous bread in the wilderness, just like Moses did. And all that to point to Jesus is actually the food source. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. Jesus' signs and his miracles attest again and again and again to who he is. Point three, Jesus' works prove he is the Messiah. Jesus' works prove he is the Messiah. Let's read a couple passages. We've already seen as Jesus claimed to be the light of the world as he set up the, uh, the healing of the man born blind. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into the contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And that's signified through the healing of the man born blind. Well, that same passage makes it clear a few verses later. For unto us a child is born, 
To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. This is, by the way, the, the, the essence of the word Christ. Christ is Greek for the Hebrew, Messiah or Messiah, and it all means anointed. And Jesus is the anointed one because the spirit came upon him at his baptism. He was anointed by God with his spirit. So when you see that the Lord talking about his servant upon whom he has put his spirit upon, this, this is understood to be the Messiah. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Jesus works testify to who he is. They testify that he is from the Father and they testify that he's the Messiah. Or one more, Isaiah 61. There are so many. Isaiah 61, one to three. This was Jesus' um, passage that he read in his hometown in, in, in Nazareth in, in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. There's your Messiah. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, Jesus' works testify to, to the fact that he is the Messiah, which means then there's only one true explanation for why they don't believe. Now, they want to frame it as though the problem is Jesus. Jesus, how, how long are you going to tease us, Jesus? How long are you going to speak in code language? Speak openly, Jesus. They're, they're placing the problem for their unbelief. Their, the responsibility for their unbelief is Jesus hasn't done enough to satisfy them. It's his fault, really. Jesus will have none of it. And, and today, you know, you'll talk to people, think if God could just come down and have a cup of coffee with me, then. Now, God has given ample, ample evidence. And Jesus' answer to them is just as true to them as it is to us now. He says, I have told you, and you do not believe. The problem is not a lack of clarity, but their unbelief. The problem is not a lack of clarity, but their unbelief. Jesus takes their implied challenge to him, Notice the way they frame the question. It's your fault. Stop being coy. Stop beating around the bush. Speak openly. It's your fault. You tell us plainly. Jesus, no, no, I've told you. You don't believe. The problem's on your end, and he's going to develop that. The problem is not a lack of clarity, but their unbelief. 
Similar again to what he says to Nicodemus in John 3.12. When Nicodemus wants to hear more, he says to him, um, there it is. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, the problem is not that Jesus has not made his identity clear. It's they don't believe. So then Jesus speaks to the basis of their unbelief. Point to the basis of their unbelief. And don't miss the grammar here. It's important. And I suspect the grammar here is exactly opposite of what you and I assume is the case. Um, this, this logic of cause and effect has been operating through all of chapter 10. It's been operating through all of 6. It's been operating through John's gospel. I'll, I'll bring it to a head here. And the logic is Jesus speaks about his sheep hearing his voice, his sheep following me. He knows his own. Why don't they believe? The text says you do not believe because, there's your causal language and there's your blank, they do not believe because they are not Jesus' sheep. The reason why I say that's opposite of what I think most people think is most of us think you become Jesus' sheep by believing. And if you refuse to believe, then you're a goat. Jesus puts it exactly backwards, causally. The causal basis in this passage of their unbelief is that they're not his sheep. Now, you could give many causes for unbelief. I'm not saying this is the only cause for unbelief. But here, it implies divine election predestination. These are topics that I know can be challenging, controversial, but it's unmistakable in the language here. Jesus says plainly, you don't believe. And let me tell you why you don't believe. You're not my sheep. The reason you don't believe is because you are not my sheep. As Jesus preaches and as Jesus teaches, his sheep, he said, hear his voice and follow him. And those who hate his voice and want to stone him, as these people will, prove whose sons and daughters they are. They do not believe because they are not Jesus' sheep. Now, Jesus has been making these types of arguments in John's gospel repeatedly. But here, the negative side is stated for the first time. We, we know earlier, why do people hear his voice and follow him? Well, they hear his voice and follow him because they're his sheep. He said that repeatedly. He'll say that again in the verse. But this is the first time not being his sheep is the stated cause of unbelief. We get the reciprocal statement here. So think of John 6, 44. This is all of one, of one cloth. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's, let's understand what Jesus is and is not saying, okay? So when you think of this type of statement, you cannot come unless it's given. You don't believe because you're not his sheep. We may sometimes imagine sort of some invisible wall stopping people, and these nice people, they want to believe, but they're not his sheep, so they can't, and they're trying to get through. That's not the way John's framed this. Turn, turn back to chapter three. Chapter three. Um, we, go, we go to this passage again and again and again, but it is so paradigmatic. Um, as a summary statement of Jesus' entire ministry coming at the end of, of the encounter with Nicodemus, we, we get this statement, um, and it helps explain why people believe John three nineteen, This is the judgment or the conclusion or the verdict coming out of the encounter with Nicodemus. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone, that is a universally inclusive pronoun. 
Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Unpack what that says. How many people who do wicked things hate the light? Everyone. How many people do wicked things? If you know it, you can just shout it out. How many people do wicked things? Some, everyone, okay. So then, no, 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 just this low-hanging fruit. Just bear with me here. I'm not trying to make this too complicated. On the basis of verse 20, I think we can safely say everyone does wicked things and therefore everyone hates the light and therefore everyone does not come to the light. If that's true, how many people come to the light? Zero. And it's not because some invisible wall is stopping them. It's because of their nature. It's because of what they love and what they hate. See, the, the, the challenge for us is we do not come into this world neutral, unbiased towards righteousness and sin. We come into this world loving darkness. We come into this world loving sin. We come into this world slaves of unrighteousness. We come into this world in Ephesians chapter two's language, dead in our sins and trespasses, following the prince and the power of this air. And it's precisely our desires. It's precisely what we want that prevents us from coming to Christ. Your blank here is this. They do not and cannot desire to come to Jesus. So I want to make this other point emphatic here as well. In the same passage in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He also says, everyone who comes to me, I will welcome in. No one who comes to me will I turn away. So, so it's not that we're to sit here and try to figure out, am I a sheep or not a sheep? Come, come to Jesus. If, if you want Jesus, if you want to come to Jesus, you can have him. He turns no one away. None. Listen to John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There are no people coming to Jesus, wanting Jesus, who are being told, sorry, you're not my sheep. The reality is no one wants to come to the light. No one desires to come to the light unless God does a work in their heart. I, I heard a, an analogy to try to explain this, about the concept of nature. You can, you can have a, a sheep um, in a cage and you can put stakes in there with it and it will starve to death. Likewise, you put a lion in the cage with straw. And again, it, it could eat the straw. There's nothing preventing it from eating the straw, the hay. It won't. Its nature prevents it. It cannot see food in the straw. John three nineteen to 20 makes it clear. The reason no one comes is no one wants to come. You are not free to love whatever you want to love. You're not. I mean, I use this example over and over with, with my kids and other people, but th think of some food you hate. For me, for me, it's sauerkraut. I am not free to twist the desires of my heart and love and hunger for sauerkraut. The best, no, no, the best I could hope for is to learn to like it, to train myself to like it. But I can't use my free will to be like, you know what, that's silly, I'm gonna start loving sauerkraut. I, I don't have that type of control over my desires, appetites, and affections and neither do you. We're born into this world loving the darkness and hating the light and without God doing a work, without him doing something, precisely because you and I get to do what we want to do, we're all gonna go to hell unless God acts and does something. Jesus looks at them and says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Point three though, that doesn't remove their responsibility. It doesn't remove their responsibility. They are fully responsible for their unbelief. They are fully responsible for their unbelief. 
We are responsible for who and what we are. And we are people who, by nature, love the darkness and hate the light. And rather than letting us off the hook, the degree to which we hate the light and love the darkness confirms and proves our guilt. Just how wicked are these people? They're so wicked that they will crucify Jesus rather than be forced to see his light anymore. That's how much they hate the light. It it confirms their guilt. It establishes their guilt. It doesn't remove their guilt. They are fully responsible for their unbelief. And Jesus has made this clear as well. In John chapter 5, 39 to 44, Jesus speaking to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They absolutely refuse to come. Why? Because they hate him. Why? Because they love darkness. But that doesn't mean they're not refusing. They are absolutely refusing. It's their fault. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. If I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me, if another comes in his name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Back in 3, 19 to 21, we, we, we get in verse 21 the exception. So again, read, read through 3, 19 to 21. This is the judgment. Lights come into the world. People, this is summing up what we're going to see in John's gospel. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. This is the judgment. Lights come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. And again, unbelief is never fundamentally about credulity. They try to frame it this way. Remember, they try to frame their unbelief as, stop being coy, Jesus, speak plainly. We just need some more evidence. We need some more clear claims. No, it's about what you love and what you hate. It's tied up with your affections and your desires and your appetites and your loves and your hatreds. Lights come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Praise God there's a but here in 21 with an exception. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If somebody does come to the light, it's because something's been carried out inside of them and it reveals not their wisdom and not their intelligence and their virtue, but rather God's work. The people who come to light aren't the smart people or the good people. You know, everyone else loves the darkness too much, but not me. No, the people who come to the light evidence God's done something in my heart. My works have been carried out in God. So take that logic into here. Jesus says to the Jews in Jerusalem, in the temple, celebrating the the feast of dedication, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Meaning, if we take the totality of what John's been teaching up to this point, they do not and cannot desire to come to Jesus. Yet they remain fully responsible for their unbelief. Okay, point three. I'm sure we can talk more about this in my ABF time. Jesus now pivots to give us again the marks of his sheep, the marks of Jesus' sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So the not sheep have been evidenced by their refusing to believe. What's the mark of not Jesus' sheep? They don't believe him. What then are the marks of Jesus' sheep? Well, I think we can infer they do believe, even though Jesus doesn't explicitly say that. I think that's quite clear. 
But two more things. First, the marks of Jesus' sheep. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and he knows them. They hear his voice and he knows them. Which is to say that the the decisive factor for Jesus' sheep is not the clearness, the repetition, the miracles, the signs. It's not the way these Jews framed it. Speak, Speak more plainly, Jesus. Speak more clearly. Stop beating around the bush. Stop leaving us in suspense. Just, just speak plainly so we can size things up. Rather, Jesus says, no, no, no. His sheep recognize his voice. If you're a Christian here today, I'm guessing you came to faith not because the 37th argument in favor of the resurrection was compelling. Maybe, maybe that's the case. I've met one or two people who their experience of coming to faith was a cumulative argument. But rather, you're, you're hearing the gospel. You're reading God's word. And all of a sudden, you know, this is the word of God. And all of a sudden, you know, these statements about your heart are true. These statements about your worthiness of judgment are true. And you're convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment as God's spirit moves on your heart. And you say, yes, woe be me. And then you look at this Jesus you may have heard about hundreds of times before. And you see something beautiful and glorious. You, you know this, this is, he is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the sacrifice. And you believe. You heard his voice. You recognize his voice because God's spirit moved in your heart. That's not to say we don't argue, we don't persuade, we don't make arguments, but they're not decisive. If they were, again, it would be the smart people who got saved. And the people who weren't smart enough to understand the really good arguments, they wouldn't get saved. No, 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 no. God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, the things that are not to shame the things that are. No, (laughs) His sheep evidence themselves by hearing his voice. And he knows them. And point B, Jesus' sheep follow him. And that's been the the, the decisive mark in John's gospel. All the way back to chapter 1. Remember the day after John the Baptist points out Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What do we read? Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed him. And then the next day, 143, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. And then through John's gospel, following Jesus, 8.12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus is telling us the defining marks of his sheep. The defining marks of not his sheep is they don't believe. The defining marks of his sheep, they hear his voice. He knows them. They follow him. Which is to say, in this context, the defining mark of a Christian, he's, he's not telling you how you become his sheep. But the defining mark of a Christian is they hear the master's voice in his word and they follow him. That's the decisive mark of being a Christian. It's not how loud you sing on Sunday morning. It's not that you've got baptized. It's not that you go to church. It's not that you can recite the creeds. These are all good things. The decisive mark of a Christian, how do you know when you're dealing with one of Jesus' sheep? They hear his voice and they follow him. It's pretty simple and straightforward. This is in John's first epistle, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. And this was what the Lord used in part to help get me lost that I could be saved. He speaks plainly. By this we know that we have come to know him. He's not telling us how we become Christians. He's telling us how we identify ourselves. Did I come to know him in the past? By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. You don't get saved by keeping his commandments. That's, that's work salvation. You evidence you're his sheep. You demonstrate the hallmarks of his sheep by hearing his voice and following him. And we need to reiterate this because there's so much bad theology out there to justify. No, you can identify a sheep because of the t-shirts they wear. You can identify a sheep because of the things they post on Facebook. No. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You identify the disciples of Jesus, the Christians, as those who hear his voice in the word and those who follow him. Okay, the marks of Jesus' sheep. Which, let me, let me pause and say again, not that you want to stress, and, and am I a sheep, am I not a sheep? If you want to be a sheep, start acting like it. Show you are a sheep. Hear his voice in the gospel message and follow him by faith. Jesus is the shepherd for the sheep. He's the bread of heaven come down, offering up his body on our behalf. He, he lives our life sinlessly on our behalf, fulfilling the law for each and every one of us because you and I could not and do not do that because we deserve the wrath of God. He died on a cross as a substitute, a sacrifice for our sins, satisfying the Father's wrath for us, he died, was buried, he rose again on the third day. And by trusting him in faith, by looking to him in faith, by hearing his voice in this message and saying, I believe that, and following him, by turning, repenting, turning from whatever you've been worshiping and following him, you enter into life by faith. And you evidence that that's who you are by hearing his voice and following him, which then brings us to these wonderful words of the security of Jesus' sheep. That's the mark of the sheep. What benefits do they receive? How does the shepherd interact with them? Well, this is, this is amazingly good news. Jesus guards his sheep and gives them eternal life. Jesus guards his sheep and gives them eternal life. These are some of the most precious, certain verses in Scripture. My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Security of Jesus' sheep. A, Jesus guards his sheep and gives them eternal life. Now notice the emphatic language. They shall never perish. Jesus has been talking about life in his gospel a couple of times. Most recently, he gives them abundant or full life. Here, it's an eternal life, and the, the, the notion here is it doesn't end. It's eternal life. They never perish. You track this life out, I don't know, three trillion years out, they're still not perishing. It just keeps going. They never perish. And in contrast to the hirelings who see the wolf coming and they abandon the flock, Jesus insists not only does he go nowhere, he doesn't leave the flock, but when the wolf would arise, when the threat would arise, they, they can't defeat him. No one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand. Well, let me pause here and say I do believe in the security of the, of the salvation of the believer. I don't think the way we normally frame it is terribly helpful. Most times I hear it, do you believe someone will say an eternal security? Yes, and that's half the truth. I believe in eternal security. 
The problem is if you frame it that way, and let me, let me use an analogy here. You, you missed the picture. Jesus is talking about himself as a shepherd. Everything he's saying is what the shepherd does. The shepherd doesn't let the sheep get snatched out of his hands. The shepherd gives him eternal life. If, if you just take eternal security, apart from everything else Jesus has said, you can end up with the belief that what the shepherd actually does is zaps the sheep so they become indestructible. That is not the, the picture here. It's not Jesus making indestructible sheep. You know, sheep who don't need to eat. Sheep who don't need to be let out and come in. Sheep who can hang out with wolves because the wolves break their teeth when they try to bite them. No, but, no, but we, we, it works this way. And it's usually for our loved ones, which is why I, I want to be sympathetic. We've got someone we care about. And there was a time in their life 15, 20 years ago when they made a profession of faith they seemed to be a follower of Christ. And now their life does not evidence that they hear him or they follow him. And then we comfort ourselves by saying, but I know no one can snatch him out of his hand. I know once saved, always saved. In the same passage where Jesus insists no one snatches him out of his hand, he also insists on what the mark of the sheep is. And it's not that the good shepherd leaves the sheep to be ravaged by wolves, but he makes them indestructible. Rather, he protects the sheep from the wolves. They don't snatch them out of his hand. So his sheep that's frolicking with the wolves being devoured is actually giving strong evidence they're not his sheep at all. The same passage that insists no one snatches out of his hand, it's the same passage that tells us what the sheep are marked by and what the not sheep are marked by. And so our, our belief in security is that the shepherd will leave the 99. The shepherd will not allow his sheep to stray long, but he will go and get them. Just like when David murdered a man and stole his wife, the Lord raised up Nathan and sent him to rebuke David because the Lord was not going to let David slip through his fingers. That, that's the way this works. It's, it's not the belief that somehow we can live however we want and we can, we can engage in whatever sin we want to engage in and we can live however we want to live because after all, you can't lose your salvation. That's not the picture here. It's about the shepherd who doesn't let the sheep escape. And oftentimes when I'm talking to people who are entrenched in unrepentant sin, I'll warn them, I'll say, look, Either you're the Lord's sheep and he's going to come and get you and he's got a rod and he's got a crook and it's going to be hard going, but it'll be for your salvation. But he disciplines those he loves and he scourges everyone he receives as a son. Or you're going to go off into the sunset happy as a clam, proving you're not his sheep and you're going to experience his discipline eternally. But there is no third scenario where you get your sin and a blessing. You either get disciplined now or you get disciplined later. So, so come back, turn, come back. So no, this absolutely is a promise of security, of salvation. But it's in the same passage that defines clearly what the sheep are. So rather than holding to once saved, always saved, which is true as far as it goes, that the Reformation doctrine was the perseverance of the saints. The good shepherd causes his people to persevere in faith. Jesus tells Peter this plainly. Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. And if I were Peter, I'd say, and you said no, right? <laughs> but no, in God's wisdom and plan, he granted that request. But what does Jesus say in Luke twenty-two thirty-two? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's how the shepherd doesn't let them get snatched out of his hand. Peter got knocked down. And Peter got back up and he followed Christ because his high priest was interceding on his behalf. So this is a glorious truth. My, my, my 
trust and confidence in my salvation is not the strength of my faith. If I could lose my salvation, to quote my old pastor, John MacArthur, if you and I could lose our salvation, we already would have a long time ago. But my hope and trust is that the good shepherd who has already demonstrated this faithfulness to come and whack me upside the head when I need to be whacked upside the head will keep doing it that he will hold me fast, that he will not let me slip out of his hands, that he will not leave me to be devoured by wolves, that he will leave the 99 and he will come and get me. But he will do it through those means so that I will continue to demonstrate the character of his sheep. I'll continue to hear his voice and I'll continue to follow him imperfectly, but that's the security we have. No one will snatch us out of Jesus' hands But, point three here, they, these sheep, continue to hear, believe, and follow him because he's shepherding them. He hasn't made them into indestructible sheep. He's shepherding them and guarding them from the wolves that devour. That's that's what the good shepherd does. Jesus is saying what he, the shepherd, does. He knows them. He gives them life. He won't let them slip through his hands. He's the good shepherd. And then he stacks up on top of that in case that weren't enough that this preservation project is not simply his passion, but it's actually the father powerfully acts to preserve the sheep. This is a team effort. If you've ever, and this again, if you're sitting here today and you are a follower of Christ, if you're sitting here today and you're one who hears his voice and you're striving imperfectly to follow him, take comfort. Not only does Jesus say he's not letting you go, he's also letting you know. His, his father's on board with this project and active in it as well. It's a team effort. I mean, you, you wouldn't think you'd need more than Jesus saying, I'm telling you, no one snatched him out of my hands. But he, he gives us, he gives more surety to this promise. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The father powerfully acts to preserve the sheep. A couple things here. First, note that the father gave Jesus his sheep. This will become more clear when we get to John 17, but in John's gospel, very briefly, we see that the father, as an act of love, gave his son a redeemed people on the condition that the son would go and redeem them. And, and this, may, this should give us, this should give us um, confidence, although it may be humbling, And what that means in this context is you and I are caught up in the love of the Father and the Son. You and I are loved the way I love the terrible but delightful drawing that my four-year-old daughter made for me and I put on the fridge. I don't love it because it's a great work of art. I love it because my daughter gave it to me, right? Jesus loves us because his Father gave us to him. Now, he makes us lovely, and his love conforms us to his image that we will be full of glory but you can bank on that because what that means is no matter how unlovely you act today the father has not altered the son has not altered and therefore the basis of his love for us has not altered you and I still remain his gift to the son and the son's love for his father is what anchors his love for us it's not the basis of the quality of the the art brush strokes and the painting on my fridge it's who gave it to me, why I love it. But more of that coming in John 17. The Father gave us to Jesus. 
the Father who has given them to me. And this is all over chapter six as well, but if you wanna go ahead, read 17, it's all about the love gift of these people that the Father gave to the Son. Point two, the Father is greater than all and he can hold them fast. So we've got Jesus' word. No one is snatching them out of his hands. If that's not good enough for you, the Father isn't gonna let anyone snatch them out of his hands. That is security. That is security. There are zero people who are in his hands. There are zero people who are his sheep who will not make it to glory. There are zero sheep the good shepherd loses. Zero, none. To entertain such a possibility that you could lose your salvation would be to entertain the possibility that you or some other force is more powerful than Jesus and more powerful than God the Father. That's what you would have to conclude because they're the ones speaking of their determination. And some people try to get around this by saying, well, it's just your free will. Your free will is not more powerful than Jesus' grip in the Father. You gotta, you gotta think a little bit more, less, less haughtily about yourself if you think your free will can overpower Jesus and the Father's declaration. Point C, Jesus ends, and we'll pick this up next week, so we'll be very quick here before we sing our closing song, which we will sing. Jesus and his Father are perfectly unified. Je- Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, the, the grammar here makes it clear Jesus is not claiming to be one person with the Father. But rather, and we'll just be very quick, one will and one nature. The, the, the Jews are going to get this to be a claim to deity, and they're not going to like it, and they're going to pick up stones, and we'll deal with that next week. I just want to close as I call up the worship team. For those of you who do hear his voice, for those of you who are endeavoring to follow him, take comfort and trust in the security of salvation that, that he will hold you fast, that he will keep you believing, that he will not let you slip through his fingers. And that you will make it to glory, not because of the strength of your faith and the doggedness of your perseverance, because of his faithfulness as a shepherd. That's, that's our boast and our hope and our claim. Please stand as we sing.